0: Hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, introduction to behavioral neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadback. I hope you get something out of it. But as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about (laughs) brains <laughs> On that note, let us begin speaking about, well, finish speaking about neural communication. So this is what I want to talk about today, which is we ended up talking, I listed all the different, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the different, anyway, I, uh, all the different kind of sensation, uh, so sensory kind of systems. We, have. we also have, of course, motor systems, which allow us to move around, okay. What happens here is neurons, motor neurons, synapse onto an end plate, which is just a way to get neurotransmitter into a muscle. These have really big channels. You would expect, okay, you would expect really big uh, ion channels on something like this. It's not You'd expect the you to go in channels because you want movement to be pretty quick, right? You want to be pretty responsive when you move. So you would expect that it's going to allow ions to rush in very quickly on these neurons. The key neurotransmitter here, though we haven't talked about neurotransmitters yet, is acetylcholine. It's acetylcholine. Acetylcholine then gets released onto into the into a uh, on, onto a muscle in essence. Okay. So what happens is acetylcholine gets released onto a muscle, and then, yes, that acetylcholine is inactivated. You want it inactivated because what acetylcholine does to a muscle is it makes it contract. And if you just keep releasing acetylcholine onto a muscle, it's going to keep contracting the muscle. And if you keep if if you make acetylcholine, if you don't inactivate that acetylcholine, the person won't be able to move. Um, acetylcholine is inactivated by an enzyme called acetylcholine esterase. And the biology students in the room are going well, i know exactly what that does by hearing the words let's just leave it at it breaks down acetylcholine yes i know it does the thing with the hydroxyl group blah, blah, blah. let's not worry about that the important thing for our purposes really in this class is that we just know that if we don't break down acetylcholine it's going to be a problem and this is what happens with every neurotransmitter when it gets released into an organ, onto a muscle, into another neuron, is that the the, the neurotransmitter gets inactivated. So if you block acetylcholine esterase, you've made a really deadly poison. Because if I block acetylcholine esterase, all your muscles contract and they don't uncontract and you die because your heart's also a muscle. That's how nerve gas works. Like sarin, for example. Rather nasty nerve agent. Um, that's how uh, a lot of uh, s- uh, snake venom works. Too. It's, a very impl- it's a quick, but very unpleasant way to die. That got very dark. I'm sorry. was <laughs> <That's> not my <laughs> intention, but it got very dark really wasn't what I was going for I wasn't trying to be kind of weird about this I just want to make sure that I covered everything I wanted to cover here yeah that's good all right so acetylcholine antagonists can cause paralysis by you not moving at all so I can just give you an antagonist with acetylcholine and now they can't can't move and it's not it's contracted it's just that it never you never um, The acetylcholine doesn't act on a muscle. Um, What's a good one? Curare, which is uh, a poison that paralyzes you, but you're still, of course, awake. Which can't move. Um, Originally, you know know John Watson, one of the original, uh, sort of, the original behaviorist, John Watson? Watson said that there was no such thing as thinking, because he was a twin. that it's just micro-speech. In other words, just talking to yourself. Well, in a way, you feel like that, because a lot of times when you're thinking, you, you, you hear your own voice. Maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe that's just me. There's something wrong with me. But I think we all sort of hear a, an internal monologue, right? Well, what Watson said was, well, there's no thinking. That's just, you're just quietly moving your lips. <laughs> and of course, you're not. Yes, please. Isn't there a medical condition where people can't hear themselves? Yeah, there are, I've heard of things like that. That would be pretty rare, but there are people who don't have an internal monologue. Um, I mean, there must be people who don't have an internal monologue because they like, never heard in the first place. So deaf people wouldn't have an internal monologue, right? People born, some born deaf. Why would they have an internal monologue? So it seems very sort of run-of-the-mill to all of us, like second nature. And then you can think of some people probably on, on the autism spectrum. I would imagine they don't. Uh, we tend to think more anecdotal stuff, of course, uh, in 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 pictures more than in words. It all works. It's just a different way to think. And we also don't just think in words. You got to make I got to make this entirely clear to you that like 95% of the cognition we have is completely inaccessible to the consciousness. There's all kinds of stuff going on that is just we can't get to. We can find out what's going on, but you don't know you're doing it. Right, I talked the other day about maybe I don't know, it all runs together. I have two classes in the same room, some of the same people. It all just sort of merges into one big damn thing anyway. But yeah, um, when you go to catch baseball, you know you have to decide to put your hand out in the right place. If you do that, to do that, you have to do tons of calculations that you aren't aware you're doing, and you can't become aware of. It just isn't a thing. Yeah, please. Better at mathematics does that mean you're you have a better chance of calculating where the ball is going to go? No. I I I was going to say almost certainly no. I'm going to just say no, because that's something you're aware of. So if you're doing what's a good math thing, Uh, differential equations, or proving identities. I like proving identities let's go with that or you're doing like euclidean geometry that kind of that, that's all very fun and interesting and problem solving and logic based and all that but it the perception of the paper in front of you that you're writing on to do the proof or whatever works the same in somebody who is good at math and somebody who isn't good at math and those are really basic systems you know, that's a neat question but I'm, i i would bet a lot of money that it wouldn't make a difference. It's an interesting honors thesis question. Uh, because what if we looked at something like oh, well, we could look at something like catching a ball, but we could look at something a little more quantifiable, like with the rotation. I talked about this yesterday in the sight, the idea of, you know, is that a letter? And you have to rotate it in your mind? Versus is this a letter? If it isn't. That's a backwards R but you have to rotate it in your mind. And in fact, the amount of time it takes you to say that's a letter or that's not a letter is completely proportional to the number of degrees off of standing straight up and down that it is. Like it's, it's a beautiful, this is what we do. We, we rotate it in our heads. Okay, so that's an extremely spatially loaded task. And considering uh, that it's proportional to the number of degrees, something's off, we can certainly do that and then test people's math ability. I know people have done stuff with, uh, for example, there's work that shows that playing Call of Duty 2 uh, for two hours removes the spatial, uh, temporarily, removes the spatial uh, superiority in spatial tests like this. In fact, I believe that's what they used. That um, men tend to have a better spatial ability than women on average. And that goes away if you get women to play Call of Duty for a couple hours. because It's extremely spatially loaded. It's, you're just practicing. So you just get used to doing something. It go, that goes away, but the point is that obviously this, these male-female differences are extremely small. They're reliable, but they're not important. They're interesting and scientifically interesting, but they shouldn't make us say something like, girls can't be fighter pilots, or stop saying anything stupid like that. Like that's just asinine. So yeah, the, Watson took curare, was still able to think, and he was paralyzed. But he said, ah, it was probably just not enough. So Watson was not a very really good scientist, because what you're supposed to do when that happens is go, oh shit, I'm wrong. <laughs> you're not supposed to say, ah, I didn't do it right. You know, so it's kind of annoying. <laughs> but that's what curare does. And sarin gas is the, that I mentioned, is an acetylcholine uh, esterase. All right. So how do we measure some of these? How do we measure brain activity, this electrical activity of the brain? Well, here's a simple one. It's the oldest form of brain imaging. In a lot of respects, this is what... Man, let's just I'll, I'll do that aside. I'll just say this is the oldest form of brain imaging. What you do is you put electrodes. You can see this has got a skull cap with... There's probably about 80 electrodes on there, I guess, yeah, it's like 80 or 100 electrodes on there, but you can make one with six or four. Like George Townsend, Dr. Townsend in computer science does great computer interface work, and he's got an EEG setup. And things like this will can allow you to determine if, you know, what sort of, this is where we think, let's back up, Let's. this is where you find things like P300. I told you about the fact that you have to react to a stimulus 300 milliseconds before you actually do a thing it's very common so if i'm looking at you i, I and i you know with this on with the eeg on and i've got a clock and it's got a hand on it and it's just sweeping around and i tell you that every five seconds the clock will hit the talk will hit noon it will hit 12. and i want you to just push a button First of all, you're very good at this. <laughs> this isn't a hard task. But when I put you put an EEG on you, 300 milliseconds before it gets 12 is when your brain tells you to do that. Your brain knows this is coming, and this is how we find out because we can look and take a look at this and go, "Oh yeah, here we go." That's not a piece I'm not gonna see if I can find what it looks like. There's nothing there. That looks like a PG. It's also one fresh. I didn't I'd done that. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, when look and we can see, it'll be a motor area, so somewhere say up here, if you use your right hand. And we can see it's positive 300. So you look at something that'll be going along. And then this is actually where the clock hits noon and where you actually do hit the button. But your brain told you to do that 300 milliseconds before. So that's how we've been able to find that. And again, this is one of those things, you, you're not aware of this, but it happens all the time. It's got a little bit more complicated. This is computerized axial tomography or a CAT scan. This is basically, it's vaguely like Bill Hader. It's like from Barry. He's just putting a guy in there. He's gonna kill him. Um, show this is basically x-rays from different angles and then what the computer does is it builds a 3d model with a whole bunch of X-rays. so this is uh, considered an invasive procedure because you are being subjected to a lot of x-rays the eeg isn't invasive because you just put a cap on and in fact when uh you don't necessarily even need a cap you can just put the electrodes right in the skull whereas this this is invasive using uh, X-rays, ionizing radiation. So, uh, PET scans are a bit different. They're positron emission tomography. <coughs> positrons are cool because they're antimatter. Very Star Trek. So positrons are negative, or sorry, positive electrons. What? Yeah, there's antimatter. When antimatter runs into matter, they explode. Yes. Yeah, one electron hitting one positron isn't going to blow up the universe, right? It's, and you're not going to get a chain reaction or anything like that. But you will get the results of, um, you'll, get, you'll see the result. I mean, you don't see it in light, but you do see it. Make sure I'm getting it right. So when the positron ends up getting released from the person, so this is the, you, you, you take a radioactive isotope, you drink a, uh, it's usually flavored so heavily so you don't taste it; it tastes like awful. Um, but you drink radioactive glucose, so it's basically like Kool-Aid. Um, it's it's not going to hurt you and again, but it, it's an invasive procedure because you can't be doing this every day There's, you're again you're drinking radioactive glucose. And then the positrons, we'll to go through the physics here, but what happens is a positron moves about a nanometer before it runs into an electron and it is annihilated. And that annihilation is then what we see on a... Now, it, you don't, it doesn't come in color. The computer is actually doing that. Okay, so a PET scan isn't in color. Just like when, the, you know, pictures from the uh, James Webb Space Telescope, those aren't really in that kind of color, some of them. Okay. those are added by a computer for us to understand. So what happens here is, in this situation, is the more activity, the darker the color, the hot, sorry, the hotter the color, and that's how the computer put here. What you're seeing here is you're seeing function. You're seeing form indirectly, and in fact, you can see this picture that I clipped off somewhere when I searched PET scan image, As an error, sorry, an arrow here which is showing that there's something missing here. See that? You see the green on the left? And you can see that there's no green here? Everything else is pretty symmetrical. That isn't. That is either telling the diagnostician that there's something missing in the person's brain, which is possible, or it could be a task that, I'm trying to think of a task that would do that. Back here, visual. <coughs> this could be, yeah. No, that's just something missing there. I, I can't think of what that could be. So there's probably something missing. But the nice thing about PET scans is you can actually see activation. You don't see that with a CAT scan. A CAT scan shows you form, not function. This shows you function in indirectly form. Ah, the MRI. Magnetic resonance imaging, or as it used to be called, nuclear magnetic resonance imaging because, the word, because it deals with the nuclei of cells. There's nothing radioactive here, but they took that name out because people were like, oh, no, it's nuclear. Because people are stupid. Not us, we are awesome. All of us are great, but most people, idiots. It's no fun that no one goes by 50 seconds of this. I kind of wanted to happen now. So basically, all it is is really powerful magnets and I mean so powerful that you don't wear earrings because they get ripped out of your ears. You don't wear glasses. You wear no jewelry when you don't go in an MRI. Anybody who tells you that the, the ink in your tattoos will rip, no, that's stupid. Don't worry. The magnet would be, have to be so powerful that it would also rip all the blood out of you. That's not a thing. Don't worry. And for a magnet to be that powerful, the amount of energy, don't worry about it. That's not happening. However, when the technician says, do you have any, I don't know, know, some people have like a screw or a pin in their leg. Don't lie, because that will get ripped out of your leg. So when you go into the MRI and they say, do you have any metal in you? You don't say, I'm pretty metal. What you say (laughs) is, yes, I've got a pin in my right leg. And I go, you, okay, good. Thank you for letting us know now. Right, but you just don't. You wouldn't have gotten to that point. There. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. You would certainly wouldn't have gotten that point. But then, then he will ask you again every single time. Take, it, take off all your jewelry. In <laughs> fact, I take my earrings out at the dentist when they do an X-ray. I don't even know why I do that. It's just a but like, So the, the, the thing is, the cool thing is, this is detailed. This is probably about a 10-year-old picture. So the detail is way better. What ends up happening is the nuclei of cells vibrate at a different rate than the rest of the cell, so you can actually see cells doing things, which is kind of cool. See, so you, you, you can see that. Look how beautiful that is. That's there's the corpus callosum. There's a ventricle. see, there's the, the pawns. Look at the cortex. It's so beautiful. Beautiful detail. Cerebellum. Look at that. Very nice. Very nice. The cool thing is, you can see both form and function. So if you're using what's called a functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, not just MRI, you can actually watch people think. It doesn't have to be just people, there are, you can put other things in MRI. And in fact, it's got to the point where in 2010, a team of researchers in Japan were able to Figure out what was being projected to a subject by looking at the MRI. Now, their computer program did that. They were just looking at it like Neo in the in in, in, in the matrix, and he could just see everything by the numbers and letters. Right? I realize it's an old pop culture reference, but you should all have seen the matrix. If you haven't, do I don't know what to say? Sad state of affairs. There is no screw. Whoa, I know Kung Fu. So this is really cool. And they were able to see that the person, and the word, you know what the word was? The word they, the person, they saw a neuron. Of course it was. They, did, they were able to get about a thousand by a thousand. No, I'm sorry, a hundred by a hundred. That's, was a, by a, that's, a, that's a megapixel. They, they got about a hundred by a hundred. So that's a hundred, a hundred. So that's about a fa- 10,000 um, pixels. And they read the word neuron. Because we know how people's occipital loads are hooked up, and if we look and see what's activated, we being a computer program that you know humans of course have programmed. Um, you can tell what people are seeing. Can you do it at the level where you can literally watch someone right? No. They have to be lying still for a long time looking at a stimulus. It's not like you can watch someone's thoughts yet. That'll come. The next, the next thing will be movement, right? By the way, we we literally know exactly how movement's encoded. So this is a matter of getting the fMRI to be fine grained enough and getting a good enough, and getting enough computing power. The limitation on these things now is computing power, almost all the time. But the day will come and you'll be able to, maybe not you, but one can record one's dreams and upload it. And then it ends up on YouTube, or perhaps DreamTube. And immediately, people start commenting. The first comment is always fake. The next comment is something about Obama, still, somehow. I don't know why. Then after that, there's a series of people trying to sell you working from home, which is really just doing nothing, and they're just scammers. And then finally, the final comment you see is someone who just says, first. <laughs> I've been on the internet since before most of you were born. Um, it's very cool MRIs are great they're mostly a diagnostic tool I mean I think of them as a great science toy but actually they're for seeing that something's wrong with somebody and where it is so when my dad had his brain tumor um, they could figure it out right away they didn't have to do the Dr. Penfield thing and go into and just poke around until they found it they put him in one of those and said there's a thing the size of a baseball in your left hemisphere they didn't say those exact words Uh, the neuro-oncologist sent those words to me because I was translating everything for my family. I was like, um, you speak brain. They've talked to, the, talk to the he was great, by the way. He even gave me papers to read. It was like I had homework all of a sudden. Oh, wow. <laughs> I said, well, so what happened? Here, here's a couple articles. I oh, great, oh, you're I read them, at them. Now, you can also record from single cells and you can get what are called event-related potentials. There's a couple of ways to get ERPs. One is using um, EEGs, but the way you can do this with, obviously this is with non-humans, is by taking a microelectrode, which is this, and look, there's a neuron, and there's a neuron. here. You just count the cell bone, One there. So you put that across the membrane, and you can actually see where the cell works. So Give a stimulus and then see what happens. That's another way to measure this neural, this electrical activity. So all, everything that's going on, I mean, it's electrochemical, but it still is electrical in a sense that you're measuring electrical output. That's basically all you're doing with most, like with directly or indirectly, if it's going on. Yeah, that's fair to say. So if you do single cell recording like this, you can actually look at individual electrons. And a wonderful example here, work that was done years ago, well not work, it was something that happened in a lab and it's a story i heard. Uh, Barry Frost, who died a couple of years ago from Queens University, used to study, but um, well, one of the things he studied was, was, was owls. And he had an owl um, with, a single, with an electrode across a single cell, in the auditory region for an owl. Okay, so the graduate student has taken the owl and put the owl in a soundproof room. I don't know if you've ever been in a soundproof room, but it's extremely disconcerting. There's no echo. It's very weird to be in a room that has no sound, like no echo. You clap your hands and like it's really strange how much of what we think of as regular sound is really just reverb, but anyway. This thing is put inside a cage inside the soundproof chamber. And then the graduate student goes out and is measuring, is looking at neuron firing. Now, the thing is, this neural, neural firing, today what we would do is go to a computer. This was 30 odd years ago. So it w- was going to an amplifier that would just make a noise. All the, the electrode would click, here. like that, when the neuron Okay and everything the, the graduate student who was setting this up was hearing so just fine but very sort of with a real pattern so she went and thought okay it's got to be some piece of equipment in the lab maybe i didn't close the door of the soundproof chamber right whatever checked everything turned everything else off still was getting it so she, she went and found another grad student and said come here and when the other graduate student showed up, the firing got even bigger. It was going psh, 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 psh. Guess what it was? It was the, it was the owl hearing. It was hearing the grad student's heartbeat. And then when the other grad student came along and heard that person's heartbeat too, and he was in a soundproof room. Owls hear better than humans do. Pretty amazing. But th- that way you can say, oh look, first, that we've been able to tell that how sensitive an owl's ears are, by doing single cell recording, it's, it's actually very cool. A lot of times, science works like that. Okay. Now, here's another example. Instead of looking at the let's, another way to look at electrical stuff, this is obviously this with slices of brains. You've killed in the animal. These are white-throated sparrows, and what happens here is there's this early gene called zinc. It's it's a what zinc is is let's call it a protein let's go with that you can actually measure expression of zinc and it is correlated with neural firing so the more zinc you get in a slice of brain the more these certain neurons are fired you can actually see where the neurons are because you can see where the zinc shows up so this is a region of the brain of a white-throated sparrow And uh, that part of the brain is called Cluster N. Cluster N is, it's not really a brain region, but it's it's, it's a pattern of activation in migratory birds that happens when they're migrating. And it is sensitive to a lot of different things. One of the things it's sensitive to is the magnetic field of the Earth. This is probably how songbirds navigate. Long distances that they migrate. And the reason we can say it's why that when they migrate is these ones here, taken from this picture on the far left at the bottom, and then this is for this one, and this is for this one. This is the amount of neural firing. This is actually the amount of zinc expressed. But it's just neural firing. These are birds that were migratorily restless. This means that they're in a state where they want to migrate. This happens, it's right around this time of year. Um, if you take birds that are migratory and you put them in a the cage this time of year, they stand at the south end of the cage. Unless they're birds that migrate north from the, in the other the other season or you do it in the southern hemisphere, they stand at the north end of the cage. Like, migratory restlessness it's a real thing. And zinc starts being expressed. In other words, these birds, and it's at night because these were these are night migrating birds. In the daytime, and when they're sleeping, so sleeping at night nothing, or very little. Daytime, very little. Nighttime, with their eyes open. Basically, their map is being is is. is say now because that means something very specific you get a pattern of activation consistent with the fact that they're going to migrate so here you're actually directly measuring almost directly measuring neural firing but this time instead of looking at the let's say a positron being created or whatever what you're looking at is a gene that gets expressed right after a neuron fires What if you could directly inactivate a brain and then activate it again? One of the things we do a lot is we'll lesion a part of the brain and then see if the animal can still do a certain task. We do that sometimes with people. We don't actually lesion them because that's unethical, evil, and wrong. But people, well, there's case studies of people who have had a bump on the head or a being elastic, all kinds of things. So what ends up happening is you can then, but those things aren't specific. Whereas with a rat, I can go in and say, I'm gonna have to take out this part of hippocampus and then test it on a maze or something, okay? What if we could, at that, at that point, that rat now has no hippocampus. There's nothing we could do. What if we had a method where we could actually turn part of the brain off? Now, you actually can do that in people. This is in a lab, and you don't go into someone's brain. What you do is you use um, electrical stimulation. It's a very powerful magnet, in essence. You just put it in the person's head, and if you get it in the right place... Oh, geez, And I think it's right about there. People uh, stop being moral, which is bizarre. Uh, it's really... You don't... Know, here's how the experiment works. I, I give you a moral dilemma question. and not moral dilemma? Here's a moral dilemma. I've decided that I really have had enough of Paul Dupuis. I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna do poison. I'm not gonna just shoot him or something. I'm gonna poison him. I'm gonna poison him by poisoning his coffee. Paul puts sugar. No Paul puts sugar in his coffee. Let's pretend. Paul puts sugar in his coffee. I'll poison the sugar. I don't put sugar in my coffee. It's not dessert. Sugar tonight in my coffee. Sugar tonight in my tea. It's an old song that none of you know. I got poison, Paul. He, he, he doesn't put sugar in his coffee. Turns out, so I don't poison. Everything's fine. Am I still? Did I still do something wrong? We would all yes. It's called attempted murder. That's a real problem. I'm not aware of a single place on the earth. Where murder is still smiled upon. I just don't think, man. Russian occupied Ukraine. But Pretty there. we all know there I did evil. If I then go zzzz with a thing in your head and then ask you that question, you go, I don't know. No harm, no foul. <laughs> Nobody got hurt. It's right about there. Like it's wild. So in that case, what you're doing is you're kind of an act, and you can actually do this. Mess with people's Broca's area, you do it right here and have them try to count. They can still count, they just can't say the numbers properly. They go, <laughs> they, they, they're, they're thinking one, two, three, and they can't say the words. Anyway. That's a pretty, and it's not, it's crude isn't quite the right word, but you're not, you're just, you're not doing something laser focused. But what if you could put a little loop of metal Right inside an animal's brain and cool the brain down to, I don't know, two degrees Celsius, to the point where it just can't fire. Not so cold that you get ice created, because if you do that, you're going to kill all those nerves. But just so cold that it shuts down part of the animal's brain. Yeah, that's a thing, you can do that. So this is a cowbird, it's actually a brown headed cowbird. I, I know who. That's funny. I didn't realize Brandon had made that picture. Um, he's a great Twitter follower, Brandon Sanders. He's a grad student in Western. So what you do is you do this, and I'm going to show you. Let's see if we can make this go. This is actually um, time lapse photography. Let's see if this is going to work. Does that change anything? there's the loop this is the hippocampus of a brown-headed cowbird and this is a temperature-sensitive movie and oh start to see that this is in real time this is actually from a brown-headed cowbird this is a picture of its brain and this is happening in real time so in about 90 seconds this is now so cold that it doesn't work it's part of the animals brain. So what the researchers are able to do in this case is they're able to literally shut part of the brain off for a while in this case it was hippocampus so that's pretty cool and you can see it as i said you can see it happening in real time there so it's pretty quick there's other ways to do this Uh, you can do this with uh, really fast-acting viruses. There's all kinds of crazy things that people are doing. I like this the best uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I like the idea of it being cold, and I can actually just see it happen. I find that to be tremendously cool. Please. Why would we want to do that? Though? Because I want to shut down part of your brain to see if you can remember something, and if I, if you can't remember it, that means that part of your brain is important in that if I when I turn your brain back on, and you can remember it. Obviously that part was important. Yeah, that's fine. It's, it's, it's a reversible lesion. What we would normally do is we go in and we just zap part of the brick, remove it. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You could do that with um, chemical lesions, so you just r- literally burn it. You can do that with electricity, but you can do it like this, and this in fact is reversible. So now you can, it doesn't show the, the other way because it's just only going one way, but in about 90 seconds it's back to normal. And the bird's fine. It's very cool. This technique was developed by a researcher. Uh, not me. My daughter. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was based on a lot of other people's work. It's not just her, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to give her all the credit, take all the credit for this. She took this course with me. And now, one of her slides is in here. It's all about full circle. Master's thesis. Like my master's thesis was like, I don't know, it took some birds, they remembered stuff. I don't know. Hers is like, well, I'm just gonna turn off part of your brain. Well, you're very impressive. Just remember who got you there. Which is clearly early intelligence. But, but anyway, so some conclusions about neural communication. Um, within neural, neural communication is an electrochemical process, right? Oh, uh, sorry, electromechanical. Ah, uh, electromechanical, electrochemical, you can say you don't And there's lots of ways to measure that activity. And that's what today's bit has been about. Is about measuring the activity of different parts of the brain, measuring that neural activity within a neuron. Any questions on that material before we maybe do a little bit of review, if you want before right, give you some tips for the upcoming test. Anything about this stuff before we do a thing with some stuff? So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, These are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the, mu- the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, If you are interested, I can oftentimes find the the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post and uh, go look these bands up and and buy their music because if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, On that note, I will see you next time.